Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to this special Newcastle Writers Festival edition of the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Rebecca Starford, co-founder and publishing director of Kill Your Darlings, editor at Text Publisher, uh, Publishing and author of Bad Behavior. Hello, Rebecca. Hi. Now, before we begin chatting, can I ask you please to read a little bit from Bad Behavior? Absolutely. Um, I've selected a, um, a passage early on in the book. Um, it's when I've uh, first arrived at the school uh, and we've just, um, we've just all filed into the dining hall for dinner. Dinner is flame-grilled chicken with soggy vegetables and packet mash. It smells like the food served in hospitals. But this is a good meal, apparently. The dining hall always serves the best meals on the first day of term or when we're about to see our parents. Seating around the table is crowded. I can barely move to reach for anything. Not that I'm hungry. When I dare to look around, I recognise a few faces from the main campus, which everyone calls the big school. Girls I've met once or twice at the inter-school athletics or swimming carnivals. They probably wouldn't remember me. The big school girls always look down on us at those gatherings. The rest of the girls around the table appear to be new. After we filed into the dining hall, Simone had motioned for me to sit next to her. She's already struck up a conversation with a girl on her other side. I'm thankful for the chatter. It means I don't need to do much talking. She's telling a story I've heard before and I relax a little, sipping at my cordial. Emma and Lou sit across the table, deep in their own conversation. Lou is very pretty, pale skin with a soft blush on her high cheekbones. There is something sturdier about Emma, rasher, with the gap between her teeth and those obnoxious freckles, but she has a kind smile. That's Portia down there, Simone murmurs, nodding towards the end of the table where the girls have their backs turned. I can't really see Portia, just the crop of her dark hair and a thick brown arm, which I glimpse as she reaches for the salt. And that's Veronica next to her, but everyone calls her Ronnie. Apparently Portia and Ronnie nearly got expelled last year from the big school. I chew on a pale piece of bread. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and the deputy headmaster told them they should be tied to the fountain in the quadrangle and flogged. Simone frowns. Are you even allowed to say that? I have a better view of Ronnie. She has auburn hair and a smooth, angular face. When she turns, I see her eyes are a silky green colour. I don't think I've ever seen a girl more beautiful. She could be a dolly model. But there is something else about her demeanour, something really savage in the way she shovels her food into her mouth and throws her long arms around. I don't know why, but it troubles me, and I drag my eyes away. Ronnie lives in Brunei, Simone continues, in a whisper now. Her dad does some sort of work in mining. She looks a bit intense, I say. Well, I heard she's been aborted since she was six. I guess that's why she's a bitch. At the end of the table, Red House's slushy, Kendall, serves the last of the food from the trolley. On a weekly rotation, the slushy, a girl or boy from the particular house, serves everyone's breakfast, lunch and dinner, as well as clearing the dirty crockery and cutlery and taking it through to the sinking industrial washer deep in the belly of the kitchen. Kendall's movement around the trolley is quiet, careful, and her gaze is lowered the whole time. When she does look up, I see how bright her blue eyes are, with lashes so fair they're almost invisible. Once I've looked at her properly, I find I can't stop. It's her hair, white blonde and gathered in a flat that hangs to her waist. She's dressed in a T-shirt many sizes too big and no brown jeans, which is at odds with the Canterbury sweaters and brown tea bars that are the predominant fashion of the dining hall. Kendall, Ronnie bangs her glass on the tabletop. 
More cordial, please. As Kendall lights off, Ronnie says something that makes the girls around her swivel. They watch Kendall cross the floor before laughing. Ronnie shrieks, piercing in the hall. As they rock back and forth, wheezing over their chicken, Portia turns and catches my eye. At the end of the passage. <laughs> and probably one of my favourite lines in the book, um, you say that the girls are like shadows or ghosts, always lurking at the edge of your memory, nudging like a boat tied loose to a jetty. Um, and yet what you've just described is so vivid and clear, as if they were in the room, I, I almost listening to that, you know, feel the same unease as if I were walking into a room of, you know, pre-existing relationships and, and feeling, you know, that, that same concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's that kind of duality um, that that a, a writer who writes memoir has. It's that vivid, those vivid memories, um, which, of course, become more vivid as you're writing them um, because they need to be um, vivid for the reader too. Uh, and also, I mean, I guess that line comes from the contemporary storyline when I'm an adult and particularly pondering the girls um, as they were but also as they might be now. And I suppose their shadow, you know, them being um, shadowy uh, relates more to them as they, as they may be now um, because I don't know them now uh, as they don't know me. And so um, there isn't that clarity in understanding or knowledge about how their personalities and all characteristics or behaviour might have changed. Um, so it's an interesting kind of, um, yeah, like I said, that kind of duality where they're very vivid in my memory but um, not so much in the, in the present. Yes, and I, I suppose not just in terms of your memory in the past, although I imagine that's the same for all of us, particularly with our school school memories mm-hmm. like that, but uh, also I guess when you sit down to write a memoir, you're effectively fictionalizing. You know, you have to mm-hmm. create a story out of, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, recollections and bits and pieces. You have to pull it together. And, and so as characters, even as they were to you, may seem very vivid, whereas, you know, the reality of those people is perhaps a bit ghostly. Yeah, of course. Um, and that's some of the things when you do sit down and, um, you know, create a narrative around your own experience. You need to adhere to, um, you know, I suppose the rules, for want of a better word, of of narrative and storytelling. And to do that, you do need to fill in the gaps. Um, but for me, I mean, for me, those passages are so vivid in my memory. And it's difficult to now just, to sort of distinguish them between what is my memory and what is on the page and what was crafted um, as I wrote the book um, because, you know, they do take on their own life on the page um, and so and, and so now it's, you know, it's difficult to to kind of pull apart what, what is in my head and now what, what I wrote uh, as well. So that's a, that's a kind of interesting, you know, um, after effect of writing them, which I think is probably pretty common. Yes. Um, I mean, even as somebody who writes fiction, you know, people people always think they're there somehow. You know, even people who mm-hmm. I hardly know will go, "Am I in the book?" Yes, <laughs> nobody's yeah. in the book. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah. do, do you find that people kind of um, they look for themselves? Have, has anybody contacted you? I have had some contact. Um, so I mean. You know, one of the characters, Simone, in the book is still very close and dear friend to me. So, 
you know, we were in obviously in regular contact and in conversation um, during the process of writing the book. Um, and that was really, I was very lucky to have that because she was both, you know, uh, supportive but also a sounding board. And um, I think I was most nervous when she read the manuscript for the first time because, in a sense, uh, she was there and she could test test the veracity um, of these events and of these anecdotes. I mean, some of them, of course, she wasn't she wasn't um, involved in or there. Um, but it was great to hear her say, "Yes, you've really you've really captured this, um, and you've really captured the mood um, and the feelings of, of, of people there." And, and and she sort of identified with so much that was in there. But I had had a couple of girls um, who who I spent a year with contact me, um, and. There's, there's, there's been nothing that's been sort of overly negative, um, but I mean, Portia, uh, as she appears in the book, has contacted me, um, as has as Sarah, um, and uh, that was not unexpected. Um, that's one of the challenges when you're, again, when you're writing memoir, and also when you're writing about shared experiences. Um, it's a real moral and ethical minefield, and one that I I still find myself navigating now. The book's been out for over a year uh, and it's still something I think about um, because, you know, for me, the way I, I suppose I could justify writing about this experience in this year was to remain honest, first and foremost, about myself. And that meant having to be quite unflinching um, in the representation of my event, um, you know, my behaviour and uh, my experiences. Um, and only, only if I did that could... Did that give me the right, in a sense, to depict any of the other girls in the way that I have? Yes, and, and you are, of course, and it is it is a perspective, and I think that comes out quite clearly. You know that this is this is your experience, and each of them, yes. are, you know, may well have a whole different book. Of course, absolutely, I would expect they would. Mm. Um, and so, and I'm very aware of um, how unreliable memory can be, and how much memory is also tainted. Um, you know by by subsequent experiences um, as well. So it's, it's sort of impossible to give an objective account of a, a particularly an experience like this. Um, but, I mean, my intention was never to write a book that exposed a whole bunch of young women about a time that happened 15 years ago. It was very much um, an investigation into myself um, and to go back to a time that had proved to be so formative for me um, and to understand a little more and to think about and reflect on the things that had happened there because I really hadn't, I really sort of shut that year out of my mind for so long um, and it became really necessary that I go back there and, and reevaluate everything and reconsider it all. Um, and the writing process enabled me to do that in a way that I never would have been able to, you know, thinking about it or, or doing anything, any other kind of creative activity. So um, it was really important for me to do that. Sure. So, Tell me about the genesis of the book. Had you been wanting to write it for a while? Did you, you know, were, were the ghosts nagging at you? Did you feel you had to exercise them? Yeah, not really. I mean, not not consciously anyway. I I first became interested in the idea of writing about bullying. Um, it's probably about six six or seven years ago. But I I really was looking at it more. Um, thinking about writing an essay or a long form essay. Um, maybe as in the sort of reportage style. Um, I, I had no plans to work any of my own experiences 
through um, this piece of writing because, like I said before, I hadn't really actively thought about it or engaged with it. And I actually had, at that point in my life, hadn't ever really thought I had been bullied or I was a bully at all. I just, it was just not on my radar at all. Um, and then the more I sort of started thinking about this idea, this essay, the more um, it became clear to me that actually I did have some experiences to draw on. And he said I was going to draw on my experiences that it's not something that could be contained um, in, a, in an essay. It required me to, you know, probably write it as a memoir um, and that would be a long-form book. Um, but, I mean, from a more sort of personal um, perspective, this, this all sort of coincided at a time when um, I wasn't feeling so great about myself. Um, I felt like I'd reached, um, you know... A, I, I sort of reached a point in my life where um, I, I felt like a little bit stalled emotionally um, and I'd come out of a, an unhappy relationship. I didn't feel happy about myself or the person that I was at that time in my life. And so uh, everything sort of converged around this project um, and then I, I began to see some patterns um, forming in my adult life that I could trace back to my school days. And so... Really, only out of curiosities, I think, well, maybe I'll see how far this charts back. And it, it sort of all began um, at this year in the bush and seemed to be a really important um, time. Um, and so that's that's really where it all began. And, of course, you know, um, bullying is, you know, bullying is a subject that, that's, you know, very, um, you know, we're constantly in conversation about it. It's constantly evolving as a threat for young people. Um, and so I, I was both interested in that, but I also wanted to know well, what, what about the bullies? Um, who, who's writing about them and their experiences and why, why is it that they're actually bullying? Um, and how nuanced is that? Uh, because, you know, we don't really, bullying in my, at least in my experience, isn't polarised between bully and bullied, um, and particularly in fact in our friendship. It's much more complex than that. So I really wanted to dig deep into that complexity. Mm, and you do. I, I mean, certainly um, even the ringleader, Portia, you know, even mm. though she, she clearly is um, at the heart of the trouble, I think her vulnerability is, is very obvious yeah. through the book. It's impossible to see her as somebody we can entirely distance ourselves from. No, well, exactly. And, I mean, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you, you felt that when you were reading because, I mean, she... You know, writing a book, uh, even though there are these very difficult memories, um, she particularly struck me as a as a young girl who was very very unhappy, um, and unfortunately that unhappiness really manifested in this kind of behaviour and and control and dominance, um, which in turn you know attracted a whole range of other girls, including myself. So it's a, it is a really vicious cycle. Um, and I mean, I think that the difference now is, um, I mean, the book set over 15 years ago, and this was really before where schools began talking really openly about bullying and aggression. So strategies, you know, I think are much different. But at that time, um, there really wasn't even any language to talk about the kinds of things that were going on up there. Um, and thankfully, that that has changed. I think now, but that's not to say that you know bullying isn't isn't rife. Um, and also sort of morphed and changed, especially, you know, the advent of all these new technologies as well. Yes, for sure. And, uh, I mean, it, it's an interesting, complicated factor that, that all of this happens 
when you're completely separate from technology. Mm. You know, you're effectively locked away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I think that, I think the environment that we found ourselves in certainly amplified and intensified the, the, the feelings that I was experiencing, um, that the kind of loneliness and the isolation and the homesickness. Um, and I, I still think, you know, this mix of girls probably would have, you know, it had been in a regular day school or something like that. But, I mean, the environment really impacted on us in a whole range of reasons. And also, I mean, much of this aggression has happened, um, you know, was invisible. Most of, most of the bullying occurred at night um, when the lights were out. Um, and so it's really hard to kind of pinpoint it when you literally can't see it. Um, much of it was, you know, um, a, a faceless voice kind of drifting across the dorm. Um, you know, it's very kind of menacing. Um, but also the teachers were so absent. Um, as well, deliberately so. I mean, that's the structure of the school. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, we just weren't really able to regulate um, our, our social kind of um, dynamic in the in the house. Yes. Are, we, are you surprised? I mean, it's been a little while now since the book has been out. And I know you, you began it as, a, I guess, a, a personal and psychological journey. But are you surprised at how universal the impact has been? How many people go, wow, you know, I really learned something broader? from this yeah it, it has been I'm constantly surprised um I mean I think that's the thing about bullying full stop um you know unfortunately most people think they're the only ones who are victim to it um but it's been so interesting talking talking to men and to uh, or women and to men actually um I've had a lot unexpectedly so a lot of men come up and say this is just this is this these experiences are so similar for me the dynamic is very similar which I, has surprised and shocked me because, you know, I mean, I, I always assumed that men, men, um, especially young men's aggression, um, was quite different and quite physical, but obviously there's that level of psychological bullying as well. But women of all ages have really identified. And what I find surprising um, and unifying is how it doesn't matter how big or small the experience might be. Um, it could be a simple slight in the playground, age eight, that is forever remembered mm. um, and carried around with us. We carry around so much of, um, I suppose it's a shame of this kind of bullying, um, whether or not we're the perpetrator or, or the victim of it. Um, or just an onlooker. And, sorry? Just, even just as an onlooker. Well, absolutely. And it may, mainly, actually, but, like, yeah, like you say, the the... Chief, um, or you know, kind of predominant feedback is perhaps not people who were victim or perpetrator, but were complicit merely by standing and looking from the sidelines. And I did nothing and feel so guilty about it. Is that common? Um, you know, those common words that I hear. Um, and but the book, I suppose, has enabled people to talk about that. Um, and of course, you know, talking about these experiences is really important because you know it kind of exercises them. Um, and also sharing those experiences means you don't have to carry them around on your own and you can learn from them. And also understand, I think importantly too, that um, not that this changes the impact of bullying, but, you know, it's my belief anyway that this kind of aggression is, is a part of female development. Um, obviously, you know, it's, no one wants to see um, any any levels of bullying or hor horrible aggression, but, I mean, female friendship at these formative ages is incredibly intense and often painful. Um, and so it's tricky It's tricky to navigate um, these periods of your life, um, especially when there's, 
not a great deal of conversation or understanding or recognition of, of the way that these friendships uh, kind of take place and the dynamics that exist within it. So it's been pleasing to see people talk about their own experiences and share them um, because I think it's opened up a broader, hopefully a broader conversation about what actually what female friendship is um, and how it is, how it is that we navigate it at all, at all stages of, of our life as well. It doesn't really go away when you sort of turn 18 and leave school, unfortunately. <laughs> no, and I mean, interestingly, uh, and certainly in a number of the memoirs around bullying that I've been reading lately, including yours, some of this carries, <laughs> and particularly when you don't, as you said, you know, you, you walk away thinking, well, that wasn't bullying. You don't even give it a second mm. thought. And, and yeah. sometimes if it's hidden in this way, it kind of becomes buried and it carries into not just relationships, but I guess, you know, in the workplace, in other interactions. Absolutely. And, and, and a lot of people have spoken to me about workplace bullying particularly and really, really horrible instances of it. And, I mean, in a sense, it's the same dynamic. Um, it's, you know, it's all about it's about power and, inter- and the interaction of people. Um, but, I mean, for me as well, um, you know, it's recognizing when it when it moves into a kind of into the realm of relationships or you know partnerships with other with with other women that became really problematic with me because um you know I didn't want to find myself in in a kind of dynamic that was unhealthy or unhappy um either so that's why it became imperative I suppose to kind of go back and and pick things apart but I mean I think we're you know humans are creatures of of um, habit and repetition, and you know, I think I think it's it's quite hard to change your behaviour um, that's been formed from a very young age if you don't have any awareness of how you're behaving. And that was uh, what where I found myself um, before I began writing the book. I didn't even really understand why it was I behaved in such a way and how it was I was this person um, because I hadn't, I wasn't very self-aware. Um, I didn't have, you know great emotional intelligence so it required me to really look at myself um quite closely and look at look at the relationships that I'd formed and that you know that's not easy to to do that and I can understand why many people would be reluctant to do that because it can open up a whole other can of worms yes and and of course there's a family dynamic going on as well isn't there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely (laughs) yeah I mean it's difficult um you know, that's another thing that, that sort of comes up when talking about the book is, you know, the the relationship or my relationship with my parents and with my with my mother particularly. Um and that's you know, that's an ongoing or work in progress because um, you know, that everything that's been going on there is in many ways exists outside of the realm of the book. Um, but writing about that has, has been the most difficult, um, because because it is an ongoing issue, um, and it sort of worked its way, you know, it's worked its way from the past in, into the present, and it's still as still strong an issue as it was, you know, when I was first writing about it. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely very challenging, um, and it's also challenging writing honestly about your own family, um, because in many ways, unlike the girls um, in the book, you know, I'm, I'm not bound up in their lives in a way that you bound up you bound up in your family's life. So, um, yes, it's definitely tricky. Yes, that, that deep-seated love, particularly the whole mother-daughter relationship mm-hmm. is, is, is hard. And I, I guess one of the themes that seems to come out of that, I mean, you look at it um, from a narrative point of view, it, that, that goes through um, to the relationship with the girls is this idea of, you know, how much 
how open should we be? How much can we say? And, uh, you know, how much are we being told not to say? Yeah. About who we well, are. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just the whole, you know, it's that question of, of, um, of you know, of identity and, and, and feeling, um, you know, finding yourself and finding out who you are. Um, it's tricky when, um, when your parents um, distance themselves from you when, you know, when you do take steps to finding out who you are. But, I mean, it's just a challenge. You know, it, it, it's it's difficult to kind of um, rationalise these relationships as well because fundamentally at the heart of this kind of schism in the, in the relationships that I have and all the relationships I have with my mum as well is that it's, it's a deeply irrational one. There's a lot of fear in there and mm. there's a lot of shame um, and there's a lot of hurt and pain as well. So it's, it's hard to kind of separate everything out. Um, but, I mean, I've, I have friends who... Uh, who are, who are estranged um, from their parents for all kinds of reasons. Um, and, I mean, the book for me was a way of trying to understand how it was this happened with mum. Um, it, it, in some ways, I, it's not something I think I can ever understand. So that was, I suppose, the outcome of that investigation or that sort of thread of the storyline um, because... Um, there, there is no real answer that's satisfactory, I think, to anyone. Um, but understanding that and accepting that has been part of the process as well, and and, and moving moving forward in a way in a way that you can um, is is what is I suppose where I am at now. Yeah. Um, and also so, the, top, yeah. the topical thread that um, you know the whole notion of of coming out, for example, is mm. you know incredibly topical and powerful to, I guess, bring out in the open. And I imagine that um, you've also opened other doors for other people. Oh well, I mean, I would, I would, I would. That would be amazing. I mean, it's um, it's funny when I first started writing this book, I um, you know, I really was thinking I don't want to write a, a coming out book. Um, not that I have an aversion to those books at all. It just, it seemed. I just didn't really want to do that. I'm not sure why now saying it, but um, it became really necessary to do it um, yeah. in the book because I realised it was so bound up in um, in a contemporary storyline with my family. Um, and it became necessary to talk about... Um, and perhaps that was why I had that aversion because it, it sort of became so clear to me that you must do this um, because so much of um, the kind of... The, sh the shame that I felt as an adult, um, both about the things that happened in the past, but also about me and my sexuality, were bound up in this, um, you know, difficult coming out. Um, and so I had to kind of push through that discomfort. Um, so you know, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of sharing of experiences in there, but um, it became necessary for me to write about them because it enabled me to talk much more freely than I than I ever had before about about who, who I am, really, um, when it all comes down to it. Yes. So tell me about the television option. How How is that coming yeah. along? Well, um, so the the um, rights for TV have been optioned um, by uh, two women, um, Amanda Higgs and Pip Carmel. Amanda Higgs was a writer and producer of um, Secret Life of Us and The Time of Our Lives, the an ABC series. And um, Pip is um, Pip is a film director, predominantly. Um, and I mean, they've they've got the 
the rights. I got the book. Um, as I understand, they're starting to put material together. But um, I, as far as that, that's basically where my knowledge ends. Um, so they're they're um, working away on that. Um, I mean, it would be wonderful if, if um, you know if the series was made. Um, but these things I know can take a long time. So um, I'm, I'm waiting patiently for updates. Um, and do you feel it'll almost so, be like another completely different version of the story that, you know, each each time and that, you know, there's a, the narrative tale and there's the movie that each one is kind of its own distinct world that in many ways is separate from you and your memories? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it would be an interesting process to see how the story was realised on screen. I mean, I think it's... um. It's, it's, I mean, it's quite a visual story and the settings are very... Um, one of the things that was important to me was to make this setting really resonate for the readers as well. Um, so I think that would translate interestingly on, you know, on the screen. Um, but in terms of the kind of creative control, um, if the series is made, I'll, I'll, um, I, can, I will be working in a capacity as um, a script editor or a script consultant, I think it'll be. So I'll have some involvement, but um, I don't, you know, don't really um, want to, would want to kind of meddle too much in their creative um, independence either because I think it's important that people take the material and adapt it and they know what they're doing as well. Um, so, you know, it's, um, I mean, it, it, it's such an exciting proposition. Um, I'm just so thrilled that they're interested in, in taking the story and adapting it. So, um, yeah, I can't wait to see where it all ends up. Yeah, wonderful. So what's next for you, Rebecca? I know you're busy with Kill Your Darlings and, and the editing. Um, are you working yeah. on another book? Is there something in the pipeline? I, I am working on another book. It's a novel. Um, it's very early days. Um, I'm, I'm sort of beginning beginning writing the first draft, so very very early. Um, but it's um, it's an historical novel set in London during the war, uh, Second World War, uh, and uh, it's about a young woman who who is recruited um, by MI5 uh, and. Uh, I'm going over to London to do some research next month, uh, and uh, you know, just continue working away at it. So it's exciting to be some, to be doing something new yeah. um, and something very different. Um, but it's interesting the way that the threads of 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 my first book sort of work their way through. What, it was interesting what you said before about you know people writing fiction and finding themselves in there, and you know it's. Um, you know, this is. I've only written one book. This, you know, this is my second project. So I'm, I'm, I'm finding my voice and finding, finding how I, how I work my way through, through my fiction as well. So it'll be interesting to see, to see how it all transpires. But it's, it's really great to be working on something new and different. Yes, wonderful. I bet you wish you had a diary for that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, that would be very useful. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's the whole. The whole process of writing it is really different because I don't have that same structure of story. I, I can't rely on you know on these on these kind of resources that I have for for bad behaviour. So um, it's good to be. I'm, I'm certainly challenging myself in in that respect. Yeah, wonderful. Um, that is all we have time for today. But listeners, if you want more, Rebecca and I, along with a number of other authors, will be continuing the conversation on two related topics at this year's Newcastle Writers Festival on Saturday, the 2nd of April. There's Playground Politics, Exploring the Darker Side of School, uh, which will be looking closer at bullying on the school ground and other institutions, and The Aftermath, which will be exploring the impact of memoir from a number of very different perspectives. 
So I think both of those will be very, very interesting indeed. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. Thank you for having me. Bye for now.